There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Events over the past year have shone a light on racial inequality across the globe. Australia is not an exception. This nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Welcome to the Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and its regions. I'm Anna Greta Hunter, physician, cardiologist, and I'm the Human Futures Fellow at the College of Health and Medicine here at ANU. Policy Forum Pod is produced by policyforum.net, and we're part of the Crawford School of Public Policy. The Crawford School is, of course, the Asia Pacific's leading graduate policy school. There's some great programs on offer here. I would encourage all listeners to check out the degree programs and the short courses that are available. And of course, you can do that through our website, crawford.anu.edu.au slash study. Today on the pod, we've got something a little different for you. It's a common refrain that Australia is the land of the fair go. Some even go so far as to say that Australia is relatively classless when compared to other countries. And yet, despite the pervasiveness of this national myth, So many aspects of people's lives are determined by chance in terms of where you're born and the socioeconomic circumstances you're born into. We've had the privilege of hosting some outstanding guests on the pod in recent weeks and months, and particularly people who've touched recently on specific policies like Australia's Job Seeker and Job Keeper program and the relationship between the welfare programs that we can provide of society and the health and wellbeing of our population. But today, our guests are going to step back and take a bigger picture look at inequality in Australia. But before I introduce today's pod, I would like to make a quick mention of a webinar that I'm hoping to catch up with over the weekend. My friend and colleague Sharon Bessel has been working on child poverty and is, of course, an expert in this around the world. And Sharon spoke at a webinar on child poverty that was hosted by the Diplomacy Training Program at the University of New South Wales. In this webinar, she was joined by Philip Alston, and I know she really enjoyed quite an extraordinary conversation. Philip is, of course, a previous um, participant on our podcast. He's Professor of Law at the New York University and formerly the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights and Extreme Poverty, and he always has interesting things to say. So in this webinar, I know they discussed some of the issues that we're going to hear about on today's Policy Forum pod, and particularly as they relate to children, to inequality and to child poverty. And I'm really looking forward to checking that out. So on to today's podcast. And today is going to be a little bit different as we listen to a recording from ANU from late last week, where we're joined by two great thinkers. Firstly, Professor Glyn Davis, 
Lynn is the current Chief Executive Officer of the Paul Ramsey Foundation, which is Australia's largest philanthropic trust. He's a distinguished professor of political science here at the Crawford School of Public Policy at ANU, and of course is the former Vice-Chancellor of the University of Melbourne. Joining him as the interviewer is Helen Sullivan. Professor Helen Sullivan is, of course, the Director of the Crawford School of Public Policy. She holds degrees in modern history, political science, women's studies and public policy, and has an extraordinary breadth and depth of understanding. Helen's scholarship explores the changing nature of state-society relationships, including the theory and practice of governance and collaboration, new forms of democratic participation, and public policy and service reform. In this conversation, which was recorded live here at ANU, Helen speaks with Glyn about his new essay, On Life's Lottery, which raises a dilemma long at the heart of philosophy, religion and politics. What are our obligations to others in a world of inequality and personal setbacks? So I'll leave you now in the very capable hands of Helen and Glyn. I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So, Glenn, I think probably a good place to start is uh, why write this? Thank you, Helen, mm-hmm. and thank you all for being here. It's wonderful. I'm still reeling because Carly, sitting over there, uh, came up before we started, presented me with an essay that I had marked in 1983 <laughs> and wanted to query why she only got 62%. <laughs> So um, memories run deep here at ANU is what I I took from that. Uh, As Colin mentioned, I finished in 2018 at at the University of Melbourne, expected to return to scholarship, accepted a job at the ANU, in fact a part-time job, uh, which I was very pleased to to be offered, uh, and then was asked out of the blue to run this new foundation. And it is one of those strange stories. The um, owner of a private hospital chain, Paul Ramsey, died in 2014. And he left his entire fortune. It's not true he left, obviously, legacies to friends and, and to family. But he left the bulk of his fortune to a new Paul Ramsey Foundation. And he gave no instructions whatsoever about what that foundation was to do. And if I tell you that we're talking about just shy of $4 billion, the largest foundation in the history of Australia, that's quite a moment. Uh, So that foundation was in the process of being formed and the then board chair and some others came and asked me, would I consider running this uh, new foundation? Because it didn't have a mission, you know, help us find out. It is the most fascinating ethical question about if someone gives you $4 billion, what do you do with it? What is the right thing to do with it? Give it to the ANU, of course. <laughs> and if you're not allowed to do that, <laughs> well, or, or to the University of Melbourne, as it turned out, what is the right thing to do with it? And um, we had lots of, lots of clues because Paul Ramsey had very clear values which he articulated. He had been a philanthropist in his own right, so he'd already given money away so we could look at where he did it. And the people on the board were very committed to a series of causes. And so we concluded that the best way to spend this money was to put it into disadvantage. Put crudely, if you are the richest foundation in the country, you should give the money to the poorest people. But you should do it in a way that's systematic, evidence-driven, and that helps them find the life they want. 
as opposed to charity, which just says, here's some money because you're doing it hard. Of course, that's a good thing, but it doesn't change anybody's life for the long term. So we agreed to spend all of this money on addressing intergenerational poverty. And this book, which is a long answer, I apologise, is my attempt to work through that question. What, what should you do with $4 billion? Even though it's not discussed in the book and there's very little discussion of the Paul Ramsey Foundation, it is actually why I wrote it, to try and think through what on earth to do with $4 billion. Well, we'll certainly come back to uh, what you might do with it and indeed what um, you and the, the board have decided to, to do with it uh, because I think that is an, is an important um, companion piece to the, to the book. But let, let's, let's start with uh, the book. Um, you've explained why uh, you wrote it, but what do we know about Australians and poverty? Because, of course, Australian is, you know, it's the best place in the world. So um, you start the book with this extraordinarily stark story of, you know, the child who has to be in poverty in order for society to flourish. But surely that's not Australia. <laughs> it's a great story, isn't it? Uh, it's by Ursula Le Guin, uh, and it's not much longer than my retelling of it. It's a very short story, but a very powerful one about societies that live with clear injustice in order that most people can have a good life. It's the utilitarianism question made stark. Australians believe, as you've just said, uh, that we're the luckiest country on the planet, and we've even got a book that says we're a lucky country, and... Uh, that, you know, by and large, Australians live very well. And by and large, that's true. But you can turn that around. If you say to Australia, did you know that our rates of poverty are higher than the OECD average and higher than most of Europe, they will look at you sceptically. If you say that 13% of Australians live in extreme poverty, they'll look at you even more sceptically. And if you say that that has not changed basically in two generations. We've still got the same poverty levels we had soon after the Second World War. There'll be even more aghast, and yet all of those things are unambiguously true. There's 13% of Australians who live in serious poverty, defined by the Melbourne Institute as half of the minimum wage, and they're trying to live on that amount. And that's 3.2 to 3.4 million people. It fluctuates a little, not surprisingly. Trying to do it really, really tough. And it, of course, isn't evenly distributed. It falls on some very identifiable groups. So there are people for whom life is seriously tough. You tell the... I'm sorry, Colin mentioned that. There's a, just a small anecdote in the book. When I was a student on campus, I joined Meals on Wheels to do deliveries here in Canberra, um, which, to be honest, I thought wasn't going to be a very demanding job because it's such a prosperous town. And after several Saturdays of delivering meals across town, sometimes to houses that could see Parliament House, they were that close in, and thinking, this is just extraordinary. Even in this prosperous town, there is real poverty. So so you've looked at the data um, and you've come up with this, you know, very confronting um, uh, narrative that, that, that tells us how we live and um, what uh, we live amongst. Um, 
But you then go to, well, how do we understand what the problem is? And it seems to me uh, that you're, you're, you're a wee bit um, forgiving, if I might say, uh, both of our politicians, but also um, of us as a, as a citizenry. Um, and I'd just like you to elaborate a little bit more about the, your reasoning, uh, both about why we shouldn't, both shouldn't let politicians off the hook, but also why it's not all politicians' fault. Um, but also why you think it is that Australia has been prepared to live with this level of inequality for such a long time. So the thing about a democracy, as we all know, is that in the end you can't blame the politicians. We elected them after all. And in Australia, every election that I can remember is essentially a referendum on how much tax people are willing to pay. That's the only ultimate question we vote on, and we always vote the same way. One side of politics has held power in this country for 60 of the last 90 years, which is a fair indication of where the Australian population is at. And whatever your personal views, you have to say that is what the Australian people have told government after government, that that is what they're prepared. So they're prepared to be, to, you know, we're, we're moderately generous but not wildly generous and people are prepared to pay taxes and give but they'll put a very strict limit on what they think is reasonable. And politicians have to work within that parameter. There's just no getting around that. Um, anyone who lived through the 2019 election saw that what happens when a party proposes uh, different and higher taxes. And that's been the story every election back. You know, Every now and again we get a break and we get to argue about a war or a dismissal. But by and large we argue about the same thing every time and we get to the same answer. So I, I'm... I, Take that very seriously. In a democracy, you have to listen to what people have said. You can't just lecture them. You know, you should think differently. Well, that doesn't matter what I think. It matters what they think. We think collectively. And then secondly, there's something very dangerous about turning poverty into a partisan issue. Really dangerous. Look at America uh, and the way um, Republicans have... Um, successfully made um, personal freedom and taxation, low levels of taxation, um, the only acceptable policy framework, and to some extent demonised the poor. It's their fault. It's, if they worked harder, if they were more serious about life, they wouldn't be poor. Uh, I, something reinforced by some religious beliefs that talk about prosperity as somehow you know, showing that you are good rather than something else. And if we turn poverty in Australia into a political issue and take partisan sides, then we actually cut off the, what is usually the governing party from being able to do effective things. And that's why I'm quite gentle about, first, not blaming governments, but secondly, not wanting it to be seen as something that, you know, your view on poverty decides your view on life and government. Because if you do that, you just write off the chances of government ever being able to address this. So you come at this... I mean, there's so much I would like to say in response to that, but I'm, I'm not going to. It's supposed to be a conversation. Uh, I know, I know, but in. you're the one who's written the book. Um, the, 
don't have to read it. <laughs> um, the, so you, you come at this from a, a different perspective. You know, yeah. you, you situate this squarely as a societal question and a question for you, which is an ethical, it's a moral yeah. question. Um, and then you explore uh, the the what that means for us as a society in terms of the responsibility that we owe to people who um, are in this situation, which, when we vote, we're quite happy for them to be in, but at the same time, we have a responsibility to do something about it. You made a distinction at the beginning between charity and between what you are saying that the Ramsey Foundation is seeking to do, which is about enabling people to um, find more of the off-ramps um, into um, back into the workplace, into society, whatever it is. Can you say a little bit more about that distinction that you draw and why you think it's an important distinction for people who are reading the book to, to understand? Just trying to, I'm just trying to find a particular quote so I get it right. Um, we can have important political and philosophical arguments about what is the role of the state and what is our responsibility uh, as people to other people. And that's the that should be the starting point of all conversations. And there are clear um, philosophical traditions that say once you have poverty in your country, you must address it and you must address it totally. So um, the Clement Attlee argument in the UK in introducing a welfare system says... Um, charity is a cold and loveless thing and that if the rich man wants to help others, he should pay his taxes, not dole out money at will, at whim, um, or words to that effect. As it turns out, he didn't really say it, but he's much quoted saying it. So um, it's like Abraham Lincoln saying that you can't trust the internet. Um, it, it is actually, <laughs> it's, it's actually his biographer who said it in, a, in explaining his attitude and then it's been attributed to him as a quote. Um, that view didn't prevail in Australia. We could have gone that way. Think about post-war Australia reconstruction. Think about Chifley. Um, between 46 and 49, we put in place many of the elements of a welfare system like Britain's, but we did not go as far as them. Once you make that call as a country, charity has to play a role because... If government doesn't pick up the disadvantaged then and there isn't charity, then you're letting people starve and that's not going to, you know, we're not going to find that acceptable. So charity has continued to play a really big role in Australia, but charity is amelioration. Charity is helping people who are in deep trouble to get through the moment and, God, that's important and not in any ever or any way to be denigrated. It doesn't change lives. So what I'm trying to draw is a distinction between charity as, a, as an immediate aid, and there are times when it's absolutely what's required, and, and an approach that's interested in saying how can we provide an off-ramp so that people who are caught in a cycle of disadvantage have a way out, and a way out that gives them the prospect of not having to fall back into the cycle, not having to fall back into relying on charities. And that's a much tougher question, but a really interesting one. And that's the second half of the book then says, well, to show you that this isn't a theoretical discussion, let's discuss a couple of really practical examples here in Australia in 2021 that are working, and what can we learn from these? We'll take a quick break there, and I'll be back with you in just a moment. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. And before we come to the learnings, um, which I know is a favourite word of yours, Glyn. Helen has on her board... (laughs) In her office, a list of words you are not allowed to say in her office, which begins... <laughs> no, I can't remember what it begins with. It's got low-hanging fruit. Low-hanging fruit, yeah. And, and I, this morning, urged her to put learnings up on the list, and she's failed. No, no, no it's up there. It's up there. It's up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pivot was last year's word, was but anyway... I, th- I think it's only reasonable. Um, but but so, so, yes, you draw this distinction uh, between charity and between um, this, this, uh, the creation of the conditions in which people can become more in control of their lives and their futures and, um, you know, really try ultimately uh, to, to sort of unravel this knot of intergenerational poverty and deprivation. And you propose that that can happen in a, in a number of ways. And I certainly want to talk about the two projects that, that you refer to. But, but before we go to that, I just wanted to put to you a, um, a, a reflection of, you know, the book is called On Life's Lottery. And Attlee did or didn't say, but certainly meant that far better to pay taxes than to be reliant on the whim of, of others. What's different about a $4 billion foundation that is still making decisions about where it is going to spend money? How is that different from the, the whims of other rich people? Yeah, it's an excellent question. Thank you for raising it. And in one sense, it isn't. It's exactly as you describe it. But if you design the foundation with care... And if you say our job is never to do government's work, but it's to work in those areas where there are no other players, then you can start to change lives. Let me give you just a brief example. There are towns in western New South Wales which have levels of incarceration of young Indigenous men that are the most savage in the world, in percentage terms there. Australian, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are the most incarcerated peoples on the planet. And when you start looking at what are people going to jail for, they're going to jail for extraordinarily trivial offences. And one of them, if you're a young Indigenous male in Burke, is you're likely to go to jail because you get caught driving without a licence multiple times. 
why haven't you got a driver's licence? Well, the first reason is that um, you never got trained and you didn't have the opportunity. But the reason underlying that is you don't have a birth certificate. 300,000 Indigenous Australians do not have birth certificates in 2021. And so you don't have a choice. If you want to drive, and if you're living in Burke, the only thing you dream of doing is turning 18, stealing your father's car and getting the hell out of there, um, you're going you're to end up in conflict with the police and it's going to go over and over and eventually you're going to rack up enough penalty points you're going to end up incarcerated. That's what's going on. It's insane. So um, we start asking questions about this. What could we do? And what we could do is put money into a mobile field unit run by Indigenous people that goes to Western New South Wales communities and organises birth certificates. And then we could fund people to do driver's courses and tests and actually get a licence and therefore not start the cycle that ends them up incarcerated. There's no government program that does that. And you'd think this is an intelligible problem that a good government could work through. You'd think, but it hasn't. Um, now, I, I want to emphasise this is not our idea. This is taking a lead from Indigenous people who've argued this is how we should proceed, and that's very much how we operate. It's, it's to listen to community and try and support. But there's a really practical example where you can change outcomes for lots of people through intervention. No government's going to do that. As it turns out, there are no other foundations to do that. If we don't do it, it doesn't happen. That is where I think we make a contribution that's genuine, original and important. And, the, and I just want to tease out from that the, 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 the number of key elements, if you like. So you've emphasised that you know, you're working in a, in a space we can call it that, that nobody else is, is in, you know, for whatever reason. Um, you've identified something that is a, a, is a clear need as presented to you by the community, however constituted. And then in the, the attempt to address that problem, the, uh, the project, the initiative, whatever it is, is something that is led by the community that you're seeking to support. So... Is that an, an approach which I know you talk about in the book, and you reference collective impact and the you know the the movement that that is um, behind that all over the world? Is that the kind of approach that you think is one that is likely to be um, more both more successful in terms of a you know what works, but also more sustainable? Yes. Very much so, and that's a very neat summary. So collective impact is the idea that there are community, that communities decide they want to take responsibility for their own community, they want change. And you don't go there till they decide that, and you don't go there till they set up the structures to do it. Change means that they've decided, and um, let me make it practical. So there's a, a suburb called Doveton outside Melbourne. It used to have... Factories. It was quite a prosperous working-class suburb. It was set up by the Victorian government in the 1950s as a new model suburb to support the harvester factory that was there and so on. And it worked really well till the early 1990s when those factories began closing and unemployment suddenly went awry and the community went bad and all of the problems that come with that uh, arrived in Doveton. And a group of local people looking at the community and saying, well, you know, we've lost all of our sense of purpose and being and belonging. The only 
institution in town that still actually has a sense of purpose is is the primary school, Doveton College. What if we built out from the primary school the services that we need to rebuild the suburb? What if we put into the primary school a health clinic, not just for the kids in the school, but that's really important because that'll start to identify local issues, but for their parents and for the neighbourhood? And then what if we put an employment service, which sounds weird, into a primary school so that as the parents come through, many of whom don't have anything else to go to, we can work with them about employment opportunities and so on. And they built out from this one institution an integrated set of services around the families that use the school and paid as much attention to the parents as to the children. This, place, this initiative is called Our Place. It proved extremely important and a very well-written 2020 um, assessment by um, Dennis Glover, who's also a novelist, which is why it's such a beautifully written report, uh, actually documents how this has slowly changed the suburb uh, with one perverse effect that as the suburb became more prosperous, um, people started wanting to move back in and they drove up property prices and drove out some people. Eh, that's what happens. Um, but this was an example of something that worked. It's a collective impact. It needs a number of things. It needs community leadership. It often needs a charismatic local leader or two to work. It needs a spine, an organ a small organisation that can actually bring people together and gets funded. And then it needs something else that's really hard to articulate but important. It needs government agencies to say, we're in, we're happy to be part of this, but for once we're not going to be in control. That is the toughest lesson of all. We're going to put our local employment office there, but instead of it operating like the CES and making you queue up at 9 o'clock to get in, it's going to be integrated into the school and integrated into the services, and it's not going to be the first thing you hit when you come into the school, but it's going to be there and same with the health clinic and so on. This is really scary for government because government gets worried about services it doesn't control. It gets worried about having to take risks. It gets worried that if something goes wrong or there's corruption or something, it'll get blamed and it didn't have control. So that's a long journey. Dumpton is a model of collective impact that takes about a decade to work. Not much happens for the first couple of years. You don't see it. it. It's cumulative. It's the flywheel. It's slow to start and takes a while. But it gets there and it makes a huge difference. There are now projects like it around the country. There's one in southeast Queensland called Logan Together. Now, Logan's one of the most disadvantaged communities in, in the nation. And I see Sharon Bell in the audience. She was the Pro Vice Chancellor of the Logan campus of Griffith University, which is now the hub of this great community operation, but it's taken a long time to get going. Um, there's one in Western Sydney called, at Mount Druitt called The Hub. There's a new one in, in Melbourne. Um, there's one in South Australia, Adelaide. in Adelaide. These are slow, difficult things to build. They fall over as often as they succeed, and they fall over for two reasons, overwhelmingly. The first is that charities can't work together. And we can talk about why, but they're often not good at And the second reason they fall over is machinery of government changes, that whatever the relevant jurisdiction is changes the minister, changes the secretary, reorganises, and um, all of that goodwill built up with a set of officials who are part of this community all gets taken out and the thing collapses. So we can, we can point to lots of failures as well. But when they work, they work really well. 
And they're a way of, they're not more expensive than the way we do things now, but they get much better results. And that's what I guess I'm trying to say. Yes, it'd been, personally, I'd be happy to pay higher taxes and I wish others were as well. But since that isn't necessarily going to happen, here's another way that you can more effectively use public money to get to a better outcome. Mm. And, and I mean, the, both the examples that you, that you talk about, you know, the place-based example and the, um, the example with um, Indigenous communities, you know, are very powerful and um, are, um, you know, resonate with experiences all over the world where, you know, you, the, these questions of, of, of being community-led or user-focused and wrapping services around people and making use of resources that you have and getting um, government and other non-profit actors to work together, which is incredibly difficult. Um, and the key thing, I think, which is, I, I'm so pleased that you mentioned it, is time, um, because uh, the, the, the only, I think, reason that uh, these things end up uh, when they do succeed, and often they don't, um, the, the only reason that, that we, we can do a kind of strict value for money assessment is because we've given it long enough. And that seems to me to be, if we're thinking about this, as I would like to in the context of what, what, are, the, what are the lessons for policymakers? I mean, that just seems to be such a clear lesson. And yet it's one that we don't learn or one that we, it appears we are not capable of learning. It is extraordinary how often that's the case. We've been looking at this organisation in Western Sydney that looks after teenage mothers to help them get back into schooling to finish their schooling. And we now have these huge data sets that says this is the best and most crucial thing you could do. And this particular organisation got three years funding from DSS and at the end of three years DSS said, no, the, the program that funded you is now finished. And um, so I'm sorry, but there's no more funding. We've picked up the funding because it's so crucial and against our better judgment because we don't like to do government's work. But that's um, why do we do that? Because we funded this Bayesian analysis on childhood obesity because we were really interested in this question because it's the best marker of disadvantage. Kids who are obese come from the most disadvantaged families, perverse though that is. And when you do the analysis on what what are the variables that matter, the single most important variable turns out to be the education of the mother. There's no point putting money into the program that directly addresses obesity. You've got to put money into the education of the mother. And so if you don't address childhood, uh, teenage pregnancy and you don't help those mothers finish education and have a job and a life... Um, you're actually condemning their kids at an incredibly high rate to a very difficult life mm. and to all the public expense that's going to come much later on with their health issues. Mm. Um, the false economy of cutting a program at the front end was extraordinary. Yeah. And yet yeah. It, was a, it was the timing question. Yeah. Yeah, and that idea, I mean, certainly, you know, again, many governments have, have um, or the, rather their bureaucracies have done that work on, you know, Let's 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 look at what it costs us to keep people in prison, to um, you know, to, to do all of the to pay welfare benefits, to do all of these things, and and how we could um, invest that money uh, differently for a long term outcome. But nobody can ever get to the long term, politically speaking. 
So credit to New Zealand, which has done a fabulous job of exactly of measuring long-term costs and restructuring programs. But my favourite is from the 1990s. They said, what does a murder cost? Mm. <laughs> and mm. the murder costs in 1990s dollars more than a million dollars to do the investigation, to find the person, to charge them and then to put them in jail. And, and now be a figure many times that. And then they said, well, what do we know about murders? Well, they happen in families. That's you know, overwhelmingly you get murdered by someone you know and typically someone you're related to, not universally, but overwhelmingly. Do we know anything about the families where this happened? Well, actually, we know an awful lot and we can see the disadvantage that drives that. What does it cost us to invest in social support for those families to not have murders? And it turns out to be a very small figure compared to the cost. Now, and having done that analysis, New Zealand then changed the way it invested and continues to invest in. It's actually a very impressive program. So um, the... I want to come to to the data question. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I do think it's important. You've referenced both the use of data, you know, where where we don't have data, where we do, the importance of of collecting it, also the importance of of both figuring out what the right question is, but then bringing data to that question in terms of understanding it and, and coming to a solution. But at the same time, the power of this is, I mean, yeah, there's some killer statistics, but the power of this is the narrative. So I'm really interested in how you, how you balance that, uh, the need for both getting into the, the data and figuring what it is and, and, you know, doing all sorts of randomized control trials and all sorts of things that we love at the moment, when the thing that makes that real is the story that you tell or the story that the service user tells, or the young child that was obese tells, and hopefully that you know they go on to vote and vote for a slightly different system than the one that we're all apparently happy with. So I'm just interested in 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 how you see, well, whether you see its attention, or, or and if so, how you see the you know the capacity to to balance this this thirst we have at the moment for collecting ever more precise data with the power of the story. So there are a number of people in the room I recognise who are writers and great writers, and so they all face exactly the same story. How do you persuade? What's the right mix of evidence and narrative? And how do you stop one overwhelming the other? And it's you know, we every one of us who writes faces that dilemma. Um, I had this is the this is actually what was published was my second go at this. I was asked to write this book. I wrote a book. Well, I wrote. A manuscript um, that tried to deal with it philosophically. It started with Peter Singer on obligation and it moved through what do we know from Rawls on veil of ignorance through to Sen on capability, through to Nussbaum on disability. So it tried to trace a sort of moral philosophy of obligations to others. And the publisher read it and took me out for a cup of tea, which I should have twigged. I didn't until I got there that this was a very bad sign. Uh, <laughs> Louise Adler, and she said, look, she said, I enjoyed this, <laughs> which was code for, but nobody else will, and, and I'm not even sure I did. And her argument was, if you want to persuade people that this is an important problem, um, giving them moral philosophy is unlikely to do it. And, you know, as, as authors do, I went away feeling sullen and disappointed and... Uh, 
and then thought about it and thought, damn, it's just possible she's right, <laughs> and rewrote it from scratch and rewrote it as a set of narratives. Her other huge impulse, well, I got used to get texts from her at night on this, was it has to be personal. You have to tell your personal story. It has to be a journey story and you have to be at the centre of it. And I kept saying I have zero interest. So only to keep her quiet, there's, there's the story of the Meals on Wheels and I tell the story of my parents who for decades put huge amount of time into St Vincent de Paul's working in, in doing everything from working in the op shops through to delivering vouchers to families in distress. And, and I, I'm proud of my parents and it was lovely to be able to tell that story and even more lovely to give them a copy of it when it was published. But I did it because Louise was just not going to get off my back if I didn't. And, I, and that, I, you know, I just calibrated. That was the minimum I could get away with on personal narrative. But it is true. You can't tell people the world is an awful place if you can't tell them how it could be different. And you can't tell them how it could be different if you can't tell stories about what works and stories in their own experience that make sense to them as from their lives. And, and you just have to think about when have you been persuaded by a book or an argument. Um, it's really a statistic that has changed your mind. And we can all have arguments about statistics. I can tell you how poverty is and you can tell me that um, really that's a wrong statistic because although technically it's correct... Even the, even the poor in Australia still have a better life than... Um, and you can argue back and forth on that. But start to put it in context and what does it mean to have a... to be grown, grown, born in poverty. And the reason for the lottery of life, which is just a metaphor to try and make that sense, is, is the thing that I find most confronting personally. We think of Australia as a land of opportunity and it's it's the same as the American view of you know if you work hard and you're committed and you you know you can rise you can have the good life if it's really down to you um if you're born into that bottom 13 percent of the population um we can track your life chances of getting out of that 13 percent and let me tell you what they are let me invite you to put in your head all of the stories you have in your head of sort of Lindsay Fox and the others who, you know, and Harold Mitchell and lots of other, you know, started poor and ended up immensely rich with private jets. So if you're born into the bottom 13% of Australian population, your chances of not dying in the bottom 13% are just slightly less than 20% if you're male and just over 10% if you're female. That is, most people in Australia born into poverty are going to have their entire life in poverty and are going to die in poverty. And we're not talking about a handful of people, we're talking about 3.2 million Australians. That's so confronting, to me at least, and I can see by the nods in the room to many, um, that it forces you to have to say, is that a reasonable set of circumstances? And what could we do individually as well as collectively? And, and I'll come to the audience in, in a second because I'm sure there are lots of questions, but I, I want to pursue this a, a little bit further. I mean, you say towards the end of the book, the hardest part of change is not embracing new ways but abandoning old ideas. Yes. And I just want to take you right back to the beginning of, you know, um, Australia's society is one that seems to have decided there's a level of tax it can tolerate and no more. 
And we've just talked about the power of narrative and persuasion and the role of evidence. And I'm just interested in, in whether you think there is any possibility that the work that you do and the foundation does and that the, the people whose work is funded by the foundation do, um, whether that has the possibility of enabling us to abandon old ideas and to think differently, or whether where we'll end up is with, you know, lots more information and good data about how we understand the problem and what solutions might be some really good examples of places and peoples where things have turned around, but fundamentally a system that still remains perfectly happy with 13% of the population living in poverty. So the story that opens the book about Omelas is that story. We know there's an injustice in our society. We're not happy with it, but given that decision between ending the injustice and our our prosperity with it, in the end we'll live with the injustice. That is Australia. That's where we've been. There's nothing in this book that I've discovered, nothing that isn't known. It's not original research. It's drawn from the work of thousands. There have been endless reports on poverty in Australia. There's an annual report from ACOS. There's a brilliant set of reports from St Vincent de Paul that have all of these numbers in them. Clearly evidence doesn't persuade and doesn't change. We have an audience of people who care about the issue and that's great. But we don't have change. So I tried to use this book to think about what change could make a difference given the starting point of the nation. I may be wrong, but I figure it's better to have a go than not to you know, than to see nothing change. But also to say, well, are there ways of telling the story that do force us to confront what our obligations are individually? To and in a sense, reminding ourselves, eighty percent of Australians give to charity every year. Eighty percent, and millions volunteer for charities. It's not like we're not willing to do stuff. Um, you know, we've got a fundamentally decent story. It surprises most people to know that if you measure um, charity as the individual citizens either willingness to give money and or to, to volunteer, that we're the second most charitable nation on the planet. It probably surprises you more to know that the most charitable is Indonesia. Um, so we do... You know, we have a basis to build on. We can, if we can mobilise, we can actually make a difference here. That's what I'm trying to do. Well, that's where we're going to leave the discussion today after an extraordinary conversation between two of Australia's great thinkers. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did and thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, we're always interested in your feedback for our Policy Forum pod and we can be reached through a variety of different social media platforms. You can reach us through Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or you can email us directly, podcast at policyforum.net. One of the ways to really enjoy a good conversation is to join our Facebook group where you, if you type Policy Forum into the search bar, you can join in with a variety of different people offering us feedback, thoughts and ideas for the Policy Forum pod over the course of this year. We will be taking a short break on the pod over the Easter break but we'll be back with you in two weeks' time with another episode of Policy Forum Pod, and we're really looking forward to it. Until then, bye-bye. Bye.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. On Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.